1st of March 1989. 82-year-old Gwendolyn Mitchell-Hill is walking down Military Road, Mossman, New South Wales, Australia, on her way home from shopping. She enters the foyer of her building, and as she goes to open her door, she's struck on the head with a hammer. She is repeatedly struck over the head and body, and her attacker flees with her purse containing $100. Although she's still alive when schoolboys find her and raise the alarm, she dies later when police and ambulance arrive. Over the next 14 months, five more elderly ladies would be murdered in the same area with the suspect being dubbed the Granny Killer. Hi, this is your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So on this episode, I'll be telling you about the story of John Wayne Glover, the Mossman monster, or better known as the Granny Killer. He was born 25th of November 1932 at Wolverhampton, England, UK. He left school at 14 years of age and later joined the army. He would be convicted of several petty thefts dating back to 1947, and once the army discovered this, they kicked him out. He emigrated to Australia in 1957, unqualified and first living in Melbourne. He's said to have had troubled relationships with older women, especially with his mother, who would have a string of husbands and boyfriends, and also his mother-in-law when he married Gay Rolls in 1968. In the 80s, he became a volunteer for the Senior Citizen Society and considered a trustworthy and friendly man. He was married with two daughters and seemed to live a contented life working as a sales representative for four and twenty meat pies. This occupation would see him on the road, visiting potential new and existing customers. It would also give him plenty of time and opportunity to stalk his prey. In the 1960s, Glover would be convicted on two counts of larceny in Victoria and stealing charges in New South Wales. In 1962, he was convicted on two counts of assaulting women in Melbourne, two counts of indecent assault, one of assault occasionally occasioning actual bodily harm, and another four counts of larceny. He was sentenced to a three-year good behaviour bond. So his first known murder victim, Gwendolyn Mitchell Hill, was attacked on the 1st of March 1989, but previously... On the 11th of January, Glover approached 84-year-old Margaret Todd Hunter as she walked down Hale Road Mossman with her shopping. He punched her in the face, knocking her down and stole her groceries and her purse containing $200. He then jumped back into his car and took off to Mossman RSL, which is the Return Services League, and spent the money. Police treated this as a mugging and held out little hope of finding the perp. Margaret would soon find out later how lucky she was not to be his first kill. 
So just six weeks later, on the 1st of March 1989, as Glover left the Mossman RSL, he noticed 82-year-old Gwendolyn Mitchell Hill walking down the street with her shopping. He went to his car and grabbed the hammer he kept under the seat and hid it inside his trousers, hooking it on his belt. He followed her until she reached her apartment complex in Military Road, Mossman, and when she entered the foyer, he struck her on the back of the head with the hammer. He would strike his victims against the back or side of the head to minimise the blood splatter. He then repeatedly hit her around her body, breaking several ribs in the process. He then stole her purse, which contained $100, and took off. A couple of school kids found her still alive, and shortly after police and ambulance arrived, she died. There were no eyewitnesses, and before police returned to establish a crime scene, good intention neighbours had washed the area, thinking Gwen had just had a fall and they destroyed any forensic evidence. Initially, police could not positively link the previous attack on Margaret Todhunter with this crime, and at the time, they believed it was just a mugging gone wrong. Just over two months later, on the 9th of May 1989, Glover was again walking down Military Road Mossman when he noticed 84-year-old Lady Ashton, widow of artist Will Ashton, walking towards him. He put on a pair of gloves and grabbed his hammer. As she walked towards the foyer of her apartment in Raglan Street, he hit her on the head with the hammer, threw her to the ground and dragged her to the area where the apartment bins were stored. Lady Ashton fought back and nearly overpowered Glover until he then grabbed her by the hair and repeatedly smashed her head against the pavement. Once unconscious, Glover removed her pantyhose and strangled her. He then placed her walking stick and shoes neatly beside her body and took off with a purse containing $100. He then went back to Mossman RSL and when the sirens were heard outside, he commented that he hoped that wasn't because of another mugging. Nice. When police found her, she was lying in a pool of blood and the pantyhose was so tight that they had cut through her skin. The forensic examiner noticed that although her purse was missing, her diamond ring was still on her finger, suggesting that robbery was not the motive for the attack. So at this stage, police had one assault and two murders on elderly women in the Mossman area over a period of about four months. All were wealthy and had been attacked in a similar manner. They now realised they had a serial killer on the loose. Now Glover wouldn't kill again for another six months, but that didn't stop him carrying out more attacks. On the 6th of June, Glover visited the Wesley Gardens Retirement Home in Belrose, about 14 kilometres from Mossman, where he molested 
77-year-old Marjorie Mosley by putting a hand up her nightgown. But when she raised the alarm with staff and police arrived, she could not remember what the attacker looked like. On the 24th of June, Glover visited the Caroline Chisholm Nursing Home in Lane Cove, about 10 kilometres from Mossman, where he put his hand up the dress of an elderly patient and fondled her butt cheeks. He then entered an adjoining room where he put his hand down another patient's dress and felt her boobs. She screamed out and hospital staff questioned Glover, but he was able to talk his way out of it and he left. August 8th, Glover assaults elderly Effie Carney in a back street in Linfield, again only about 10 kilometres from Mossman. On October the 6th, Glover now pretends to be a doctor and visited the Wybena Nursing Home in the lower North Shore suburb of Neutral Bay, which is minutes from Mossman. He sticks his hands up the dress of blind patient Phyllis McNeil, who screams for help. Glover quickly leaves the scene. On the 18th of October, Glover stalks 86-year-old widow Doris Cox along Spit Road Mossman. She again is walking home from shopping and as she approaches the stairwell of her retirement home, Glover slams her head against the brick wall. She falls and Glover takes her purse. When police are called, she can't really describe her attacker as she suffers from dementia. She tells them she thinks it's a young teenager, possibly a skater, and as what happened before, neighbours clean up the scene before investigators arrive. Now let's remember that at this period of time, security was pretty lax compared to nowadays. You could easily walk into some of these nursing homes without being challenged at all, especially Glover, as he looked like a well-dressed businessman and harmless. He didn't look like Charles Manson, so he could slip in and out of places barely noticed by anyone. It's just like how no one suspected the likes of Ted Bundy to be the evil killer that he was. So it's 2nd of November 1989. Love Shack by the B-52s is on its way to number one on the Australian record charts. Glover approaches 78-year-old Lane Cove resident Dorothy Binky while she was walking down a laneway towards her residence. He chats with her, then offers to help carry her shopping, and she accepts. Dorothy offers Glover a cup of tea in return, but he declines and leaves walking back down the laneway where he sees 85-year-old widow Margaret Parhood carrying her shopping. This time Glover attacks. He hits her from behind with his hammer and she collapses to the ground. Glover hits her again on the side of the head, then rearranges her clothes, walking stick and shoes, then takes off with a handbag. He runs to a nearby golf course and takes the $300 of cash and again goes to Mossman RSL to spend the money. The next day, the 3rd of November, Glover strikes again. 
This time, it's 81-year-old Olive Cleveland, who was sitting on a bench near Wesley Gardens Retirement Village at Belrose, where she lived, which is about 14 kilometres from Mossman. Glover strikes up a conversation with Olive, but she becomes uncomfortable and gets up and leaves, walking towards the main building. He follows her and grabs her from behind, forcing her down down the side of the building. He then hits her on the head, then repeatedly slams her head into the concrete. He then takes off her pantyhose and strangles her with them, leaving them tied tight around her neck. Again, he arranges her walking stick and shoes and takes $60 from her handbag. Yet again, her injuries are attributed to a bad fall and the crime scene is washed down before investigators can get there. With no eyewitnesses, the police still have no leads on who may be the perp. The state government now increases the reward money from $100,000 to $200,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the granny killer. So now there are four dead grannies in roughly the same area in less than 12 months. Police are also concerned over the number of assaults on elderly women in nursing homes during this period as well, but these are not yet linked to the murders or reported to the Granny Killer Task Force. At this stage, they still have very little evidence and no real leads. So it's less than three weeks since the murders of Margaret Pahood and Olive Cleveland. It's the 23rd of November, and Glover is at the Buena Vista Hotel in Middlehead Road, Mossman. Glover sees 93-year-old widow Muriel Falconer walking with a shopping over the road. Glover leaves the hotel, goes to his car that is parked outside the police station, grabs his glove and hammer, then stalks Muriel as she walks towards her home in uh, Muston Street. She opens the door. Glover grabs her from behind, covering her mouth to prevent her from screaming. Then he hits her around the head and neck until she falls to the ground unconscious. She then begins to awaken and cries for help. Glover repeatedly hits her again over the head and she passes out. Glover then removes her pantyhose and strangles her. He checks her purse and around the house, and after arranging her shoes next to her body, he flees with about $100. The next day, a neighbour discovers her body and police are called. They are this time able to collect forensic evidence and they find a bloody shoe print. The neighbour is able to describe a suspect as middle-aged, portly and grey-haired. The state government now increased the reward to $250,000. As part of his work as a sales rep selling pies, Glover would approach businesses that offered catering services to try to get them to stock his product. So he was often alone driving around in his company car and it wasn't out of the ordinary for him to visit nursing homes. 
on the 11th of January 1990, Glover went to the Greenwich Hospital in River Road, Greenwich. Instead of going to the kitchen area, he walked to the palliative palliative care ward. Here he found 82-year-old advanced cancer patient Daisy Roberts. Glover asked if she was cold and proceeded to lift up her gown and touch her private parts. Daisy cried out for help and a nurse came running in and confronted Glover in the room. Glover ran, but as the nurse was able to get his car rego number, she called police. As he often visited the hospital as part of his job selling pies, he was well known to the staff and they were able to identify him from a photo the police showed them a week later. Police called him and asked him to come down to the police station for an interview. Glover said he would, but when he failed to turn up, they called his home where his wife answered. The detective asked if Glover was there. She replied that he was in Royal North Shore Hospital after attempting to commit suicide by taking pills and washing them down with alcohol. So police went to see Glover in hospital and interviewed him. He refused to answer questions, but permitted them to take a photo of him. As he didn't answer questions and the police had little evidence, they knew they would need a confession from him. However, staff at the hospital handed police a suicide note that was written by Glover. In the middle of a page on 4 and 20 Pies business paper, it was written... No more grannies. Grannies. And Essie started it. Essie was Glover's mother-in-law. As police now put surveillance on Glover, they decided to target nursing homes in the area to see if Glover was known to them. On one occasion, detectives visited the James Milson village at 4 Clark Road, North Sydney, not far from Mossman. Here they spoke to the secretary, and she seemed to know a lot about the pie man. In fact, when asked about the pie man, she said, Are you talking about four and twenty pies? The detective answered yes, and the secretary then asked, Are you looking for John Glover? Amazed, the detective again answered yes. The secretary then told police that John Glover was her husband. The detective asked, if she would tell her husband that she was here today and she replied no, as he was so upset last time he attempted suicide. Police were now concerned that Glover would go to his solicitor and confront police with a put up or shut up or he would go undercover or even go and attack another woman. So Glover at this stage has been under constant police surveillance for several weeks. So on the morning of 19th of March 1990, Glover called his employer and advised them that he was not coming into work today as he had to see his solicitor. Police were listening into the call and they knew that the game was up. Police surveillance team followed him and he went to a bottle shop and bought a bottle of whiskey. At around 10am, Glover stopped and exited his car, carrying a bottle of whiskey and a briefcase. Although the bottle of whiskey seemed unusual, they didn't think too much about it, 
and as he was carrying his briefcase, they assumed he was going to see his solicitor. He knocked on the door of 60-year-old divorcee Joan Sinclair from Beauty Point. Glover was having an affair with Joan, so when she answered the door, she seemed quite comfortable and quite happy to welcome him in. He entered the building while police surveillance waited outside. After a few hours, there was no sign of Glover and they couldn't see any movement inside the house. Later on, they noticed a dog barking and decided to call in uniformed police to knock on the door and use the dog barking as a premise to see what was going on inside. They noticed that the place seemed to be in darkness with the curtains pulled and no one answered the door. When they looked through the rear glass doors, they saw a bloodstained hammer lying on the floor. They reported this and task force detectives rushed to the scene at around 6pm. Here they were to find the body of Joan Sinclair. Her battered head wrapped in a bundle of blood-soaked towels. She was naked from the waist down and her pantyhose were tied around her neck. Her genitals were damaged. They would then find Glover floating in the bathtub, slashed wrist and with empty pill bottles and the bottle of scotch on the bathroom table. They rushed him to hospital where he survived. Glover would be in, was to be interviewed in hospital but police knew they would still need him to confess to the other five murders as they had very little evidence. Police searched his house and amongst other things they found a pair of shoes that matched the bloody footprint found at one of the crime scenes. Eventually Glover would confess to all six killings but tried to mount a defence of diminished responsibility pleading not guilty as he was mentally ill. This would ultimately be rejected by the jury and he would be found guilty on six counts of murder. Justice Wood described Glover as a dangerous man that if let back into the community would almost certainly re-offend. He went on to say, He is able to choose when to attack and when to stay his hand. He is cunning and able to cover his tracks. It is plain that he has chosen his moments carefully. Although the crimes have been opportunistic, he has not gone in when the risks were overwhelming. The period since January 1989 has been one of intense and serious crime, involving extreme violence inflicted on elderly women, accompanied by theft or robbery of their property. On any view, the prisoner has shown himself to be an exceedingly dangerous person, and that view was mirrored by the opinions of the psychiatrists who gave evidence at his trial. I have no alternative other than to impose the maximum available sentence, which means that the prisoner will be required to spend the remainder of his natural life in jail. It is inappropriate to impose any minimum term to be served before release on parole. Having regard to those life sentences, this is not a case where the prisoner may ever be released pursuant to any order of this court. He is never to be released. 
So although he was given six life sentences without parole, he would eventually be successful in committing suicide 15 years later on the 9th of September 2005. He was aged 72 years. They found him in the shower block of Lithgow Jail hanging. No relatives attended his funeral. Now, although Glover confessed to the six murders in that 14-month period, he was suspected to have been involved in many other unsolved murders. Now, these include Emmy May Anderson, 78, East Melbourne, 19th of October 1961, Irene Kittle, 61, of St Kilda, on the 22nd of March, 1963. Elsie Boys, 63, at Praran, 3rd of June, 1967. Christina Yankos, 63, of Albert Park, on the 9th of April, 1968. There was Florence Broadhurst, 78, of Paddington, on the 16th of October, 1977, Josephine MacDonald, 72, of Edelong, on the 29th of August, 1984, and Wanda Amundsen, 83, of Yemina, on the 21st of November, 1986. But Glover never confessed to any of these murders and he took any secrets he may have held to his grave. So, true crime islanders, that really was a shocking time. I remember it quite well. I think the really hard part for police was at the final murder, the fact that they were watching him 24 hours a day, and he was still able to kill his last victim. She was the only victim that wasn't a random kill. She welcomed him into her house and police were sitting in cars outside and she still got murdered. Glover was able to commit these crimes because his job had him on the road during the day. He would usually finish around 3pm which gave him plenty of time to have a look around for potential kills. He kept his murder kit in his car ready in case he needed it. He would limit the damage that his hammer blow would make so as not to make too much blood splatter. He would then clean the hammer in acid, which he had at home, to clean off any evidence of blood. Often, the crime scene was washed down by helpful neighbours before investigators would get to the scene. Nowadays, this wouldn't happen, but back 25 years ago, times were different. Although he never really stated why he killed the way he did by targeting old ladies, he did indicate that his mother and mother-in-law had given him issues. But hey, everyone has issues. It doesn't mean you go around knocking old ladies over the head with a hammer for beer money. So that ends this episode of True Crime Island. Uh, This week I've actually got into Twitter a bit more and have found some great fellow podcasters of true crime. So a shout out to Nina at the Already Gone podcast, Robin 
Robin at the Trail Went Cold podcast, the guys at UK True Crime podcast, and They Walk Among Us podcast. These are all really great true crime podcasts that I've been binging on this week, and I will get to all the other podcasts in the next few weeks. Thanks to all my followers as well. I hope you enjoy my podcast. So don't forget, you can listen to this podcast in several ways. You can visit the website at truecrimeisland.com. I'm listed on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, even Podbean and Player FM. On the website, uh, the contact page, there's links to Facebook, which I think is the next part of True Crime Island I need to have a look at doing something with, but I haven't got my head around that just yet. I've links to Twitter and, of course, a link to email me directly. Episodes can be streamed or downloaded for later listening on the episode page. I know that everyone asks for five-star reviews on iTunes, but that's up to you. If you want to help promote the True Crime Island, uh, just be kind as I'm a noob at this, but I'm striving to improve it each episode. So, True Crime Islanders, don't forget to delete your browser history. This is Cambo signing off from the True Crime Island, another true crime podcast.